Welcome to this week's episode of Crime Survivors Speak. My name is Aswat Thomas. I'm the National Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. We are a national network of 100,000 victims of crime across the country. If you haven't already, subscribe to stay up to date on the latest episode that you can watch on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming services by clicking the link on your screen or going to the website www.cssj.org podcast. Today, I'm so excited. We're highlighting another amazing survivor leader who was a tireless advocate for victims of violence, sexual abuse, and incest. Priscilla Burdale. Priscilla is the Michigan Statewide Manager for Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. She's also a sought after motivational speaker whose story has inspired countless people to disrupt cycles of harm and pursue healing. Thank you so much for being with us today, Priscilla. Thank you for having me. Cool. So let's jump right into it. To begin with, would you tell us a little bit about growing up and what was it like for you and how the path of your life helped you discover the importance of healing? I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. I was born in Texas, but raised in Lansing, Michigan. I lived in 17 houses alone in Lansing, Michigan, so we moved around a lot. Part of that just had to do with my parents just trying to make ends meet, but also living paycheck to paycheck and going home to home because of things that you didn't really know about until those secrets were exposed. One of those secrets were when I was five years old, my dad has 14 brothers and sisters, and the FBI raided all of our houses at the same time in Lansing. They had been on our family for a little over 10 years. My uncles and my grandfather ended up going to prison for at the time was one of the biggest drug scandals in Lansing, Michigan. The guy that my uncles and grandfather worked for ended up being executed in Texas due to the amount of deaths that took place in the drug ward. So growing up with my last name was super tough. My dad was the only male that was not involved in the drugs and the only one that had not gone to prison. We moved my sixth grade year back to Texas where my dad ended up with a pastoral position. And that's the year that my family would tell you was the year of experiencing literal hell, which is very confusing because you would think being attached to a church, that would be a safe place. But that's the year my father began to rape me. I grew up in a home where I felt like I had to keep things very secretive and I didn't have a lot of resources on healing really in general. There was the faith base, but the faith base was confusing because my father was supposed to be a pastor who helped people and served his community in order to help people get out of dysfunction. He was a charismatic man who was to help preach the good news, but behind closed doors, we were experiencing everything but those things. So just not having outlets as an adult, you look back and you try to do as much of the research that you can to try to figure out the why behind things. Not that There's anything that can excuse what my father did, but just to bring an understanding, my grandfather 
had raped his 13 of the 14 kids. So it gave me an understanding of the continuous cycles that were going on in my family. And it wasn't just sexual assault. There was drinking, there was domestic violence. Obviously there was drugs and there was different things that were starting to get passed down. After just experiencing my own trauma from being unhealed, I just decided that's not the life that I wanted. I didn't want to do what my cousins were doing. I didn't want to end up in jail and prison like they were. And I decided that I deserved to go through the process of healing and that I deserved to be free. And I chose to forgive my father and to forgive my mom because she also made a choice to choose my dad at the time, again, from just unresolved trauma and didn't have what she needed to get healed. So how does she help me? All of those things combined to, I don't want this anymore, so I'm going to search for healing. And I went after all of it, and it's the best decision I could have ever made. Priscilla, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and the generations of trauma that you and your family have went through as it relates to sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug abuse as well. I want to dive a little bit deeper into that moment or that point of forgiveness. Can you talk a little bit about what was that like for you to forgive someone so close to you who has caused you harm? You know, I think a lot of people think that forgiveness means that we're excusing what's been done. But when I came to the realization that forgiveness wasn't about that, it wasn't about excusing anything. It was more about me deserving to be free. Forgiveness isn't necessarily about a person deserving to be forgiven. If you think about does someone deserve something like that, your automatic response is no. But when you look at it from your own life and what it's producing in your heart and your emotions, and then those turn into actions, you start to realize that you deserve to be free because the opposite of that is unforgiveness. When that sets root into your heart and into your life, it then creates bitterness, it creates anger, and it's really hard to reach your full potential as a person, to accomplish your destiny, what you were born to do with unforgiveness settled in your heart. And I remember hearing a speaker talk about the power of forgiveness and what it has done for their life. And I decided that moment, that was what I wanted for myself. Not because it was easy, not because they deserved it, because the simple fact that I deserve to be free and I deserve to go after everything that my heart really truly desired. But I had to go through that process of healing. A lot of people, when I speak with them, when they're dealing with unforgiveness towards someone. Everyone likes to talk about, it's a process. Healing's a process. And I 100% agree with all of that. Life is a process. But one thing that I found to be true is that we each choose how long we're gonna be in that process. And I wanted to see the side of healing. I wanted to see victory. I wanted to see justice and all of those different things. And so I had to move along the process so that I couldn't, get to a place where I was stuck. We all have our own healing journey um, in, in, in that time frame of what that looks like for us, which is important. Also, we know what's part of the healing journey. What I'm hearing from you, Priscilla, is just like that, uh, that moment of reflection of wanting to 
make a difference, not just in your family's life, but in the, in, in the lives of others. I was the first person in my family to ever graduate uh, from college. And I also know you were the first person in your family uh, to go to college. So how did that feel? And did college open up any new possibilities for you? Ooh, college was really amazing, but really hard. There was a feeling that I've never experienced before when you can accomplish something no one else in your family has. There's the beauty of that, but the challenges that I faced being Hispanic, being the only girl going to college, the financial struggles. I worked full-time while attending full-time school, while leading worship, being an RA. It was really hard. But what it opened up for me wasn't just accomplishing and getting that degree. What opened up for me was me getting on my own and realizing how unhealed I was. And when you get out of the place where you've only experienced dysfunction and you get into a new place and you're still the same and you're still dealing with the same things, the fingers point at yourself and you start to realize, oh man, I'm doing things that I said I would never do. I feel like I was heading down a road that wasn't the best for me. And so what that did was it exposed where I was unhealed. And so that's where like the first place where I was able to get counseling. I met my best friends in college. It was the one thing I prayed for. I had a great experience in high school. I had a lot of great friends, but I just wanted to find my people. And so I was very blessed to find my best friends there. I would say that during my college years, that was the first time I had ever told my story. I had told my best friend and she had asked me, to tell my story for her video class. She had to ask me a few times because I kept saying no, like I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to tell my story. I ended up saying yes. And it was really cool because she had everyone in her classroom sign a contract and said that nobody would repeat my story outside of that classroom. Like we were gonna respect me, my position. And it just brought a lot of comfort to me. And when she was interviewing me for the very first time, there was these bright lights on me. I knew from that very moment how I was feeling when I was telling my story and going through that process of healing that this was something that I was gonna end up doing for the rest of my life. And so I really feel like through that entire college experience, it opened so many doors for me to be able to become the motivational speaker that I am. Honestly, it was just like a coincidence that like I just happened to get asked to share my story. And I just found out a couple weeks ago that same teacher is now asking if the college can do a documentary on me. And I'm just like, wait, what in the world? You just never know what your story can open up for other people, but also how much healing is like, it's a space for you to also help other people heal. Most definitely. You talked about something that's so crucial for survivors is just like creating that safe space that allowed you to be in a space amongst people who you felt that would not judge you. Right. And being comfortable to be vulnerable, to share your story. And while you were in college, I'm just fascinated that you were planning to work in elementary education before even going into any victim advocacy. So I'm curious, is there a connection between those two focuses for you and what experience inspired you to become an advocate for other crime survivors? Yes, there's a huge connection. I love that question. No one's ever asked me this before. I got this idea that I wanted to sort of 
hide away from my story. And I think the idea just came from that natural tendency of wanting to hide and keep things secretive. But that's not what I was born to do. I was born to be a speaker and to motivate people to get healed. And I decided, well, I'm going to get a degree in elementary education because I remember as a child, the number one person that I could rely on were my teachers. Those were the consistent people in my life. When everything else was chaotic, when I was moving from house to house, when we didn't know if we were going to eat, when we were homeless at one point, like this is the one consistent person that I can see every day who's actually showing up and teaching me something positive. And so I decided that I'd get my degree in elementary education to be that person to somebody. So I graduated with my degree, came back home shortly after. I I ended up working at a place called Methodist Children's Home. It was still working with children, but I was still very drawn to helping people who've been affected by crime, who've been affected by just life's negative circumstances. It was a home where their parents were incarcerated and some of them, their parents were deceased. They had experienced being sexually assaulted, and I just felt like so called and drawn to do that. So I did that for a couple of years. In the process of all of that, I basically decided I'm going to write a book and I'm just going to start doing advocacy work because this is where I feel most fulfilled. I decided this advocacy role is kind of where I wanted to go, but could still work with kids. And so it just turned into that just like naturally. But that was the reason why I got the degree was just because my teachers were so amazing. And I actually still have relationships with my teachers now. And actually, it's very hard for them sometimes. They see us now, and they they had no idea the things that we were experiencing behind closed doors. And I'll never forget the first time my math teacher found out about our story. I think he like saw it on the news somewhere. And man, he showed up and he was just in tears because he just felt like, how did I not know? He said, if there was ever... You know, I have an identical twin sister. So he said, if there was any students I ever had that I knew was going to make it in life, it was you two. You two were the poster children. We just knew we're going to do excellent things. How did we not know? Like how, what signs do we look for, for kids who are experiencing this kind of trauma? And we didn't even know it. That was a very moving conversation. And I'm very fortunate to be able to go and talk to like our teachers, our local law enforcement, our National Guard, places where, you know, what are things that you can look for? You know, people need a safe space to be able to reveal their trauma. So this journey uh, that you've been on as a survivor, as a advocate, as a motivational speaker, as an author, I remember meeting you, I think it was 2019, uh, before the pandemic. I remember, you know, just sitting down, uh, talking with you, um, and we've bonded instantly, um, especially around our experiences as, as survivors, the lack of help that our families and ourselves received. Before I left, I said, Priscilla, like, what do you want to do? And I remember you mentioned it to me. You said, as what I want to change policies. Why was it so important for you to not only help survivors, but also to work on changing policies as well? Yeah, I'll never forget that conversation too. I often tell people, I didn't know who Oswald was until that Radisson Hotel conversation. And I'm I'm very thankful for that opportunity and just that moment of getting to meet you. The way you asked me though was key because you said, if there's anything 
you could do that you're not doing, what would it be? And my answer was, I want to change law. And the reason that was because really deep down before education came into like play, I truly did want to be a lawyer. If you ask anybody in my family, I am a good debater. You don't want to debate me. I'm sweet, I'm kind, but when I believe in something and I'm passionate about something, I'm going to let you know and I'm going to make sure that my point is proven and proven as truth. So I always wanted to be a lawyer, but I knew that when I became a court advocate and then became a medical advocate, I just noticed that there was a lot of things that I felt restricted. There were things that I couldn't do to help people because everyone would always say, well, that's just the law. That's the way that our system is. And it's just like, I don't know, it just was the one area where I'm like, well, then we need to change the law. But I never knew how to start or what to do. And I was a court advocate. Like, I'm like, wait, I come alongside these people to be a support system to them. But I felt like I was just constantly hitting a wall because the barrier to make the changes were so difficult. But yeah, like that's pretty much like where my heart is with all that. Like I didn't know about CSSJ. So when I met you, I just felt like the piece of my heart, like the piece that was missing was like starting to get complete because I was like, wow, there's actually an organization that cares about this piece. But also I always felt alone in a way because most advocates advocate for one thing they're passionate about. And if it's multiple things, they all kind of go hand in hand. But when you think about crime survivors and what they experience, to see a lot of the changes that you want to see, you have to focus on those who are also committing crimes. So I was advocating for both sides, which is very much unheard of. Like I used to get, well, if you're for the survivors, then how can you be for those who are committing the crimes? But as I began to study and just see how the system worked together, I started to feel and see that what was set up wasn't working. And part of that was because there was tremendous barriers on both sides. People think crime survivors only want justice, put people behind bars, and that's it. But like, that wasn't my heart. My heart was, why aren't we getting them rehabilitated? If they're coming back into our communities, why aren't we helping them? I looked at my own family history and I'm like, there's crimes that are being recommitted because the people that needed help from their own trauma didn't get the help. And so they resort to crime, not because it's right, not because I want to excuse it or give people a free pass, but on both sides of things, there's barriers and both sides need healing. And in order to end cycles of crime, I always say you can't end domestic violence and sexual assault by only focusing on the victims because they're not the ones committing the crime. So we have to turn and look at the other side and find a way to bring healing to both sides because ultimately when you do that, healing takes place for everyone. And that's what we deeply want. That's my heart is that everybody gets a chance and opportunity to get healed, to get rehabilitated, to get that second chance. And that's what I find so fascinating about this work, Priscilla, is that when you talk to survivors, there's been this myth that, you know, all survivors want people to be locked away 
for years, locked away, never to come back home. We want survivors to just focus on the punishment. And what I've learned, not only just through my own direct experience as a victim, and I remember when I found out that the, you know, two young men who shot me, they were 18 and 19 years old at the time. And I remember just the first day I was going to the court trial, and I just remember hearing about that young man, and he could barely read or write. Um, at the time, um, he was from my neighborhood. He was facing 40 years in prison. I just started to feel so bad about that uh, young man. And that's when I began that journey to advocate, to advocate for him to get a lesser sentence from 40 years to 10 years. So that accountability for me, it, it was there. I mean, I remember feeling so good after he uh, accepted that plea deal. Priscilla, thinking about the members of Crime Survivor Safety and Justice, who you work with, why do you feel it is so important to really prioritize healing for victims as well as perpetrators of harm? Why is that so important for communities like Lansing, like Detroit, and so many communities across the country? The simple answer is because hurt people will hurt people and healed people will heal people. And I feel like a lot of times we want to focus on who's hurting who. I think our perspectives and our heart and desire needs to change towards healing. I think that when you focus on healing and removing barriers that victims have to face, it's an opportunity for a new slate. It's an opportunity for relationships and families. Think about the crime that that people experience, a lot of times it's connected to someone they know. And my heart for both sides is not to cause and bring more division. It's to bring us closer together. It's to bring unity. It's to provide resources. All of those points of healing. And I think that if we want to say we want to make our community safer, we have to look at the legislative side of things. We have to look at who's running, who's making the decisions in our communities, and then elevating the voices of those who've been most affected. I think that is the most powerful thing is our voice and being able to share our experiences, our trauma, but not just to share it, to share, to share it so that we can bring positive changes to our community. And I believe that our organization, CSSJ, offers that to our members. Our members love that they have an opportunity to share their story. They have opportunities to access resources because they need rehabilitation, they need advice, whatever that may be. I feel like there's so much more that has to be accomplished, but I feel like we're headed in the right direction. And healing is a must for all of us because that is the way for us to stay unified, but also to experience what life was truly meant to be. Incredible. Just listen to your journey that you've been on. It's like the definition of healing to action. In just a few years, you became our chapter coordinator for CSSJ in Lansing, and now you came on staff to lead our Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice work in Michigan, along with our chapters and 4,000 members across the state. But also, you've been on the front line of passing some remarkable uh, legislation. So I want to talk about uh, several bills that you've been able to help pass in the state and that's part of CSSJ and the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Uh, so back in 2020, uh, Michigan passed the Clean Slate Bill, which, you know, which removed barriers for people who have caused harm 
for them to access housing, jobs, and education. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you as a survivor to advocate for a bill for people who have caused harm to get better access to jobs and housing and education, things that we know which stop the cycles of violence? Yeah, man, the clean slate. I First of all, I just, I love the title of that name. Clean slate, to be able to say you get a record clear, you know, you get a new opportunity. Like I said, believe in those second chances for people, especially when they've done their time. It was interesting because when we were trying to get this bill passed, my family was actually in the middle of experiencing exactly what we were trying to promote. One of my uncles had just been released from prison and they were trying to figure out the time frame of like when things should be paid for the victim. They're talking about different things of like, when should a record be cleared? And I'm hearing all of this while like Clean Slate Bill was being created. But what I love about the Clean Slate Bill and being a part of being able just to testify and work with crime survivors just in the state of Michigan is that it helps break those barriers for people who want and need the opportunity to find good jobs, secure, safe, and affordable housing, The focus was to help strengthen families, communities, local economies across the state, and promote public safety. What more could we want? Those points are incredible opportunities for people to be able to say, you know what, I've done my time. I've stayed away from crime for X amount of years, and yet they have a hard time getting a good job. They can't provide for their family. That's not okay. That this bill getting passed was an incredible opportunity where thousands of Michiganders could go through the process of getting their records expunged for a new life, for a new opportunity to be able to work hard and for things to be sealed and covered. And I feel like what greater way to give back to your community, give back to your family than staying away from something that you were a part of long ago. The Clean Slate Bill was just like one huge historic bill in the state of Michigan. Shout out to all the survivors and organizations across the state, the bipartisan leadership that made a commitment to helping people have a clean slate. So that was back in 2020. This year, there was another uh, remarkable historical bill that was passed as part of the Safer Michigan Act. I would love to hear a little bit more Um, about the Safer Michigan Act as it relates to the victim compensation. And also another important part of the bill is productivity credits. Can you say more about the Safer Michigan Act and why is it important to help keep communities safer in Michigan? Yeah, I love the Safer Michigan Act. I love what it stands for and what it's trying to accomplish. I feel like we're halfway there. We were able to get the victim compensation bill passed. And the beauty of that is that we went from being the worst in the country. And there's like, how embarrassing to be the state that's the worst in the country when it comes to victim compensation, because only 2% of your crime victims were receiving funding. Part of that was because most of the people didn't even know that victim compensation existed for those who've been affected by crime. It was really awesome to be able to share with our members and experience this moment that this bill got passed because we went from 48 hours to have to report to the police a crime in order to even receive victim compensation. And I feel like that's very difficult 
If you're a crime victim who's in the hospital trying to recover, that's very difficult if you've been just raped or you're trying to come to terms with what just happened to you. 48 hours is not enough time for a victim to come to terms with their healing, especially if they're battling a physical trauma. So we went from 48 hours to one year. And then they have five years now to file for victim compensation. And we were able to increase that funding from 5,000 to 10,000. And when you think about why do you want to increase it that much? When people ask me, I always say, listen, if you were to lose your life, you lost a loved one, that $5,000 wouldn't even cover a funeral cost. We don't want you to have to worry about the financial piece. We want you to be able to heal and recover and get the resources you need to overcome the trauma that you are either about to experience or that you are experiencing. So it was really cool to be a part of that. I'm so proud of the members of this state, the crime victims in this state. They really want to see change and they know that it changes on the legislative side of things. And they know that the way that they have to see change is by utilizing their voices and uplifting their stories. So there's that piece. And then productivity credits is something we are still currently working on. I have high hopes to see that Michigan will come through. It's very, very different productivity than good time. Good time is you sit in prison and you be good. Where productivity is you're productive. You're in prison, but you're being rehabilitated. You're taking courses and classes to become a better person. We want them to be productive while they're in the prison system so that they come back out and contribute to society. So that is something we're still working on. Overall, what Productivity Credits does is it allows them the opportunity to go before the board. I think that is so huge, having survivors, you know, really be at the center of policy making. As Priscilla, you mentioned, you know, most people are uh, incarcerated in the Michigan Department of Corrections. They're coming home. They're coming back to uh, communities uh, across the state. So we want them to come back better than they were before and, and providing opportunities to be productive is critical uh, to help stop the cycle of violence. And so if you are listening, if you are in Michigan, you want to get involved with the Safer Michigan Act, please join Priscilla at the Capitol and talking with legislators and sharing your story. Go to the website right now, uh, cssj.org. If you scroll down, go to Michigan, fill out that membership application form and join our chapter, join our network for you to get uh, involved to help our communities heal and to also to ensure that the survivor voices are at the center of public policy. So I just want to thank you just for your just your incredible leadership of, of being a survivor, of being an advocate, being a community organizer, being a change maker, and to help us pass these policies that aren't victim-centered, these policies that aren't informed by the lived experiences of us. And so Priscilla, you do so much, right? You are, you have, you're an author, you do motivational speaking, you're organizing survivors across the state, you help them to change policies, you talk to reporters and shift the narrative in the media, um, you go to church every Sunday, you, you sing in the choir, you do a lot, uh, right? Something I do want to touch on is that not only do you advocate for survivors on a policy level, but you also sit with survivors in some of their hardest moments, uh, including with survivors of sexual assault when they are undergoing rape kit collection in the hospital. Now, you've also volunteered much of your time working as a court advocate to support victims of sexual violence. How have you learned to support and hold space for people going through such painful experiences? 
Yeah, you know, I've been doing this for about 15 years. Thank you so much, too, for just everything you've just said. This isn't a solo act. You know, I everything I do is a team effort with my CSSJ team, my colleagues, my state managers across the country. Like, man, we... We have each other's back and we know that this work is so important. And so we're all hands on deck kind of team. So I have to give a lot of credit to them, but also a lot of credit to the victims across the state of Michigan because they are powerful. And, you know, I may be the person that's in the front, but let me tell you, everything I do is for every single one of them and they deserve all the freedom and all the healing we can give them. My work as a medical advocate coming alongside rape victims while they get their rape kit done I learned a lot. I came in that work thinking that I was going to do a lot of different things. But what I found was that the most powerful position that I could be in when it came to being a support system and an advocate and helping someone through their healing process was the simple fact of showing up. Me showing up at the hospital to come alongside them, hold their hand while they're getting physical things done to them, to be able to pray with them, to encourage them, to say, hey, listen, like there's some resources after this experience because trauma also begins in that process even after the trauma they've already experienced from the violent act. There's there's a lot of different things that play a role into, into the aftermath. And I just found that the power of showing up, man, you never know how you can help someone heal until you show up for them. And your presence is the most important key when you can just be there and be a listening ear and and extend grace and mercy and just extend encouragement. I feel like that's the way to move things and to move people and I don't know. It's definitely one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. It was very, very difficult because I had loved the CSSJ work. I was like, that's the work I truly deeply in my heart, the changing law, working with even more crime victims. I mean, the opportunities were just amazing, but it was also like a very, very difficult decision to also leave some of the work that I was involved in. But I'm very thankful that, you know, CSSJ allows us to stay connected to these communities because the reality is, is we're all working together to strive for the same thing. And that is to heal our community. Priscilla, you are you are remarkable, right? <laughs> and so, you know, that incredible advocacy uh, that you're doing, you also run a nonprofit called Remarkable, uh, where you mentor women from the ages of 18 to 35 to help them realize their potential and purpose in life. What do you enjoy the most about mentoring young women? Oh, man. Let me tell you, mentoring is tough, but man, it's one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever done and continue to do. I started Remarkable because I started to draw a lot of young adults. And I just remember that age between 18 to 35, you know, I was in college, you know, away from the dysfunctional life, but that dysfunction followed me because I wasn't healed. And I just know that because I was in a place and position of of not being healed, I would make decisions that were not good decisions. And I basically made some of my biggest mistakes during that age group. And so I felt like 
the way that I could give back and the way that I could help people is to help people in that age group, like help them discover who they really are, be a support system for when they do make a mistake, when I can come from a place of non-judgment, when I can encourage them and uplift them and say, you know what, all right, let's get back on our feet, what's next? And really, I was in a service at church where I serve faithfully. Yes, I'm the worship director and I love to sing, but during one of the most difficult seasons of my life, We had a guest speaker, and her name was Dr. Varello. And out of nowhere, during the sermon, she came up to me and she said, God calls you, young lady, she calls you remarkable. And she just started to speak life into me. And when it came down to making the decision to support these young women, my pastor reminded me that the guest speaker had called me remarkable. And from that moment on, that's why we decided to call the group Remarkable. And we break down what it stands for. You take the R-E, the RE, that stands for everybody gets a redo. You take the word Mark, and we said everybody is marked with a purpose. And then we take the word Able. We believe everyone is able to reach that mark. So when you put that together, it's remarkable. And I loved how that was created because it goes hand in hand with the work that I do even outside of Remarkable. That second chance, that redo is so key to life because we all fall short in some way, shape or form. And to be able to give that opportunity when you fail that test or when you mess up and you get an opportunity to start over because you're now forgiven or because you made the decision to make good decisions, that is beautiful. And that in itself, I wanna be able to say that I'm attached to all things good. And that's what Remarkable does. I love, love that that group. We're in a bit of a transition because we are starting to actually get a lot more young men as well. And so um, we're kind of upgrading. Remarkable is turning into a co-ed thing. So that is very much new. And so in the next couple months, we're going to include guys every other week into our group as well because our heart is, you know what? Anybody that wants that redo, wants that opportunity to get healed, let's bring it together. That's awesome. Or or should I say that's remarkable, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, excited to just to hear just the, the growth of Remarkable. Priscilla, my last uh, question for you, and you touched on this uh, a little bit earlier. You know, a lot of people who are listening, who will listen to uh, this episode, you know, might think that working with uh, hurt people might feel heavy uh, and challenging. And, and it is, right, for all of us, especially for us as survivors. But, you know, I know you draw a lot of joy and inspiration from your faith and the power of music to help heal and lift folks up in your community. Can you tell us about what gives you the strength to do such powerful work and services for others? Well, yes, I have to say faith. God definitely is my strength. He gives me the strength to do all the work that I do. But I also have to say that it's the members, it's the crime victims, it's those who've been affected by, by harm that keep motivating me. It's unfortunate that, that you're seeing the numbers rise on that end. It really saddens my heart. But at the same time, I find joy in the fact that I've been given an opportunity to be in this position as well as so many others. And we can't take that for granted. And we can't we can't neglect our roles and what we've been called and what our purpose in life is. You know, I find joy knowing that, you know what, I have resources. We have good answers. We have great opportunities to help people. And what better way than to continue to offer that to those who've been most affected by crime and by trauma. And so 
I would have to say it's for them. Like they're the reason I keep going and keep doing the work that I do because one person at a time, we want to see people healed. Keep doing and you are making it happen. You're an author, you do speaking engagements. Could you quickly share? Um, you're also very active on social media. How can uh, people get in touch with Priscilla to learn more about your story, your journey, to book you for a speaking engagement? How can people get in contact with you? If they want me for speaking engagements or just want to hear more about my story, they can catch me at PriscillaBordeo.com. And then all of my social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are all Priscilla Bordeo. I'm not as active on Twitter, but Facebook and Instagram are definitely my friends. It's a great way to stay connected to the community, but also just to interact with other people. There's pros and cons to it, but I try to look at positive things and I try to use my platform to be positive and encouraged. So if they want to catch me on social media, it's Priscilla Bordeo. If you want to learn more about what's happening in the state of Michigan and crimes, fire for safety and justice, definitely follow Priscilla. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having this important uh, conversation on what it means to really heal through action and most importantly to the better support uh, survivors. So thank you, Priscilla, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Aswad. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to today's episode. Remember that this is a very important election year. So if you want to check your voter registration status, if you want to register to vote or get information about voting deadlines or rules in your state, visit Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice website and learn more about our Heal the Vote campaign at www.cssj.org vote. And if you want to become a member of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice or join our email list, visit our website to join a local chapter or our national network. Remember Remember, you can tune into all podcast episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming platforms. We are healing through action. When survivors speak, change happens. <laughs>